How many of you love a good courtroom drama? There's lots of stories that center around them. John Grisham and Scott Turow have made writing careers around the courtroom. There are numerous TV shows, all the Law and Orders, right? What makes that show interesting is all the moving parts that end in a courtroom. There's the good wife and the good fight and suits and how to get away with murder and the practice. And then, of course, there's reality TV. Judge Judy is the latest judge, but there's the people's court, not to mention all the public trials that we've witnessed secondhand through all our years. I mean, many of you are too young to remember the OJ trial, but it is now iconic. From the white Bronco to the phrase, if the glove does not fit, you must acquit. We see courtroom drama all around us. Movies like My Cousin Vinny and A Few Good Men and Twelve Angry Men. And one of my favorites last year, The Trial of the Chicago Seven. What do we love about these stories? I think two ideas. I think the guilt and justification. Like, we like to see the guilty punished to get their just desserts. And we also like to see those who are accused of being guilty get exonerated. And we also, I think, like that, like if you've ever, like if you've ever been on a in a courtroom or sat on a jury, you watch these shows, you love the drama of it. But when you actually do it, it's really not that exciting, right? Like Danette served on a trial this year, and she would come home and share a little bit with me, at least what she was allowed to share, and it wasn't at all dramatic. No one stood up and declared, you can't handle the truth. No one was ruled in contempt for their angry outbursts. There was no shocking testimony at the end. It was just long days, fighting to stay awake and engaged without the benefit of having an iPhone for a break with lots of accusations and a mixed bag of truth-telling. And even the pronouncement, she said, lacked any sort of drama. There was no OJ moment where everyone gasped and the news rippled throughout the courtroom and then into the city. So why is it interesting and appealing? I think it has something to do with our experience, our imaginations. Like we all know what it feels like to be accused. You and I live a life of constant accusation. Maybe from people at work or people online or people in your neighborhood, or maybe it's closer to home, accusations from your spouse or your children or your parents or your siblings or yourself. Accusations fly around you. This is your fault. You shouldn't have bought that. You shouldn't have ate that. You should have gotten that out of the way. You should mow the grass. You shouldn't use so much water on your grass. You should lose weight. You you need to put on weight. That coffee was too strong this morning. Why didn't you make the coffee? That work was below par. That presentation, meh. You didn't finish that equation right. You forgot a step. And we also imagine and envision being declared righteous of getting back, of righting the wrongs, slided in line. We imagine Chick-fil-A karma, know my pleasures, and forgotten Chick-fil-A sauce. This week, we were waiting for a package for Blakely. We were planning on leaving to return to Albuquerque by early afternoon, but we got stuck waiting on the package all day until 5. We paid for it to be in at 12, and so I made calls and urged them to value my time, and I imagined being righted. I think my wife quipped at one point, maybe the driver just needs to get fired. This is what we do. We imagine justice, things 
being made right. We demand justifications for all our wrongs, our loved ones' wrongs. And I think that lends itself to stories about justice and injustice and writing all of it. Paul, in Romans 3, is convening the court. The language is courtroom language. Commentator James Anderson clues us in. One set of terms comes from the law courts, consisting of the words righteousness, law, reckoning. The first two terms are heavyweights in this passage of some 150 words. Righteousness occurs nine times, law seven times. And the second set of terms, deriving from the institution of law, including redemption and grace. And a final set comes from the rituals of animal sacrifice, and it includes expiation, the sacrifice of atonement, sin, and blood. And the most common word in the entire section is faith, which recurs ten times. Paul is convening the courts, and this is point one this morning. Paul has summoned all of us. The setting is the day of judgment. This is the reason this matters and is dramatic, because Paul has made the claim that when everything is said and done, when life ends, we are all going to stand before God, our maker, and give an account. You are the defendant, not only you, you and everyone else. You are here because you have been accused. This is something we would say when we'd share the gospel when I was a college student with my campus ministry. Suppose you were to stand before God today, what would you tell him? Why should he let you into heaven? I can still remember some of the replies. It was always awkward, but nearly every time someone had a quick answer. Everyone was quick to give evidence, facts, impressions, reasons that they deserved or didn't deserve to be allowed to enter in. I think we are quick because at some level we are all living out this courtroom drama. We all feel accused. We are all wishing and hoping for someone to exonerate us. Like this is something that grips our imaginations. It grips our world. And Paul knows this about us humans. He knows the church in Rome is full of humans who are each measuring sticks of righteousness and judgment against other humans. He knows that this church has a regular rhythm of making accusations and imagining redemption. He also has been proclaiming a gospel in all his travels in the world that speaks to this very deep human problem. And he's been accused by others that this good news that he's preaching is really just a declaration that the law and doing the law now matters not because of Christ. So here he is answering this deep human problem and this ministerial accusation in the flow of the letter by giving an answer to the great guilt of the world. What do you imagine, all of you, saying to God when you face him? What will you present him? We will consider this today. In a sense, Paul says, your honor, the defendant, is guilty and the list is long. Let me call your attention to exhibits 1 through 4,500,863. Do you have anything to say for yourself? And the answer Paul suggests is not to contest the charges. The evidence is too clear and overwhelming, but simply instead to place a hand over your mouth. 
This is why he starts the passage like he does. But now is what starts this passion. But now presupposes everything Paul just said. Humanity stands justly condemned by God's law and wrath. But this, however, is not the final word. But now is also an explanation of hope, a pivot point from wrath to righteousness. But now is the pivot point in the courtroom. But now God has intervened to do something about y'all's guilt. All our machinations of justification. But now, Paul says, the righteousness of God has been made known. The cross of Jesus and the resurrection has inaugurated a means of salvation to all who are guilty. Righteousness, and remember that word has to do with justification and rectification, being declared not guilty and being made righteous, wrongs overturned and undone. And Paul says this righteousness has been revealed apart from the law. The law testifies towards our guilt. Like I said last week, it's a hall of mirrors, but also to this righteousness. There is this sweet antithesis towards the law. This righteousness that Paul's about to talk about is apart from the law. This means it's neither subordinate to the law nor derivative from the law. The law and prophets testify to it. They bear witness to the law. The law accuses, but it's not a part of it. It's not a part of this righteousness. And it's something that no one else but God can give. Like the temptation when we are accused is to gather the faithful witnesses who will offer a better word. It's something we all do in our anxiety. We all rush not only to our own defenses, but we gather others who will testify for us, to us, to offload our anxiety and make us feel better. But Paul is saying that the law and the prophets testify against us, and they even point to the standard of righteousness, but they can't acquit us. They can only accuse us. The righteousness that Paul speaks of here depends on something else entirely. Like, you can try gathering a gaggle of character reference in your trial, but that won't make you righteous. They're just in cahoots with the law. They continue to hold up a standard that you really can't meet, even with all their smooth words, because God says, I know the heart. They can't see this, but I can. No, you need something from outside of you. This is why Paul's advice is a version of pleading the fifth. Pleading the fifth is your right not to answer questions of guilt or innocence in custody or court. In a sense, you cover your mouth. Paul is advocating for this in a sense. He is saying, erase the docket of character witnesses. They're all insufficient to save. Look, Paul says, there is no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And I want to stop here and have you think about this for a minute. If the righteousness of God is manifested apart from these voices, in the moments of your accusations, in standing before God, and at some sense, at some level, the big L law or the little L ones, why do you keep appealing to these voices? Like the law says, you will find righteousness where? At the end of doing your best. At the end of making the grade. 
At the end of pontificating to your spouse why you are worthy of their love and their respect, the law says that's where you'll find righteousness. But if the righteousness of God is manifested apart from that law, we can't, we have to stop appealing to that law. There is a standard and we don't measure up. And if we keep appealing to those standards, we keep trying to measure up. One of my favorite Seinfeld episodes is where Jerry meets up with his old nemesis from high school, Duncan Meyer. Duncan talks about a race that he and Jerry ran, where surprisingly, out of nowhere, Jerry justified his whole high school existence by winning the race. Now, what Jerry knows and what Duncan suspects is that there was some funny business And now he challenges Jerry to a rematch. But just like high school, he says, I will not run. I choose not to run. Why? Because he knows that his justification rests elsewhere. He can't possibly measure up to the legend of himself winning that race in high school. Now, this touches on the power of justification, on this deep desire for righteousness in the courtroom drama of life that we all have. We are all yearning and longing to be declared right. And even our taking the ball and going home and not playing is linked to that. When you don't or won't talk to your spouse in the middle of a fight, you just shut down and stop talking. There is in us a deep sense and longing for justification. But the only way we know how to do it, to get it, to achieve it, is more law. Even our ways of pleading the fifth in our own life and being stoic and shutting down is in a sense a little l law that we're using for our justification. And so the law testifies to righteousness. It bears witness to Jesus Christ and finds its proper culmination in him. As Paul will argue in Romans 10, 4, Christ is the end of the law. This does not mean that Christ is the negation of the law, but he's the goal and fulfillment of the law. This agrees with Galatians 3.24, where the law is regarded by Paul as a chaperone who escorts a schoolboy to the headmaster, Jesus. The law leads to Christ, but only Christ can teach salvation. The law is preparatory and subordinate. It reveals sin and leads to Jesus. And this leads to point two. Paul convenes the court that we might hear the judge's verdict. Verses 23 and 24, the verdict is justification. Justification is God's way of righteousing the unrighteous, of silencing all those accusations and of vindicating us. What does that mean? Well, It's legal jargon here that Paul uses, so I want to make some of it clear. In Deuteronomy 25.1, if there is a dispute between men and they come into court and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty. Notice how acquittal is contrasted to condemnation. These are the two outcomes of judgment, two verdicts of the court. In 1 Kings 8.32, Solomon is praying to God about the efficacy of future prayers at the temple. Then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding them 
according to his righteousness. Same language is used. In Matthew 12, I tell you on the day of judgment, your people will give an account for every careless word that they speak. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. Justification is the verdict, the declaration of the judge. Specifically, his ruling that a person is right, declared righteous, acquitted, innocent. God the judge pronounces it. James Edwards, a commentator, says it like this. God pronounces the verdict of acquittal upon a guilty party, thereby reckoning or imputing to that party a quality which it does not possess on its own, nor can it possess apart from God's pronouncement. But isn't that wrong? Paul senses this is the question. How can God rule some of the unrighteous righteous? How can he? Like we sit here as Christians, we hear the gospel proclaimed, we assume so much And the question Paul is begging, that's being begged by Paul's statement, by God declaring unrighteous people just, is where then is justice? That seems wrong. And Paul responds, it's not that God has neglected justice. In Jesus, God's justice is displayed as he dies On behalf of others. The judge's ruling is not based on anything in the defendant. This is what Paul means by saying it is a gift by grace. This is incongruent grace. There is no defense to all the accusations. There is no way to vindicate the defendant in and through his own defense. The incongruent grace of justification means that there is nothing within any of us that predisposes God to act graciously towards us. So why does God justify anyone? Why would God declare you righteous? Why would God change your status from condemned to pardoned? Because God is love. God simply chose to give you a gift of grace. And that's the only reason. Now, perhaps we can understand a hint of this, when you think about the relationships if you have children. If you are a parent, you might get this concept. When your kids have been disobedient and you take away a privilege or they don't get to enjoy something fun as a consequence, you can at times show them pure and unfiltered grace. I remember trying to illustrate this to my child. I said this many years ago, but I we, we, would, we would discipline the kids in the bathroom, so I sent my oldest to the bathroom. And in a, a thought of pastoral genius, I was like, I'm going to teach him about grace and propitiation and a sacrifice for sin. So I gave my son, instead of spanking him with the spoon, I gave him the spoon to spank me. He didn't spank me. He really just didn't know what to do. He just looked at me and he was like, what? What are you talking about, Dad? Like, there was no understanding of the gift. But we want to give gifts to our kids. Why? Because you look at your kids, even in their rebellion and their dumb decision-making, and you love them. And grace to them flows out of 
the love you have for them. They don't deserve it at all. If they deserved it, it would not be grace. Grace in the Bible is always incongruent. And this is a rich theme in the book of Romans. It is favor to, to those, given to those who deserve the opposite. This is what God shows us. Now, it was hard for the beauty of grace to sink into my heart this week. To be honest, this week was, with dropping my daughter off at college, one of the most stressful of my life. And I barely had adequate time to get a sermon written. Sometimes you just don't feel it the way you should. So I want you to marinate on this for a second. Let's do this. Everyone, I want you to close your eyes. With your eyes closed, I want you to think back on this past week. Think about the ways you've failed. Words that you've spoken that were untrue or cruel. Thoughts that you had that you wouldn't want to reveal to anyone else. And then let that play in your mind with your eyes closed over an entire lifetime. That week, like Groundhog Day, just repeating itself. Then imagine standing before God in his blazing beauty and holiness and glory as you acknowledge all these things. Think about the only thing that you would be sensing. I cannot stand before you. You must remove me from your presence. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people with unclean lips. And God sees all these things in your life. God knows all your thoughts. God hears every word. God is hurt by every transgression. And in the moment of reckoning, God announces his verdict and he pardons you. He gives you what you did not deserve, you did not earn. He pours out grace. That is a real possibility. You can open your eyes for every single one of us as we stand before him at judgment. God is that loving. Do you believe it? Because it does seem crazy. How could God do that? How could God forgive all the countless grievances he has against us? My buddy Luke Evans shared this story. After the school shooting at Columbine High School in 1997, there was a memorial service in which the presiding minister called for forgiveness of the two men, uh, young men who had committed the crime. Paul Greenberg, writing for the Wall Street Journal at the time, felt like something was missing. He wrote, yes, there were words of comfort Tuesday night, words of mercy and grace and forgiveness, but I don't recall hearing anything about justice. And he says this, and what meaning can mercy and grace and forgiveness have if they're separated from justice? Now, this is a very biblical instinct in this writer. God is not good if he sweeps sin under the rug. And so the question is, how is it possible for the righteous God to declare unrighteous to be righteous without either compromising his righteousness or condoning their unrighteousness? This is the question that leads to point three. God's answer to his verdict is the cross. Jesus is put in the dock for us. The dock is the seat, the place of accusation. How can God give us the gift of incongruent grace? How can we possibly be justified and God not be an unjust judge? I mean, the evils in the world are real evils. If God just pardons, how does this make sense of all the suffering? And Paul says, yes, God knows this question in his divine forbearance. He passed over sins in the past. How could he do this, Paul says? 
because it was to show his righteousness in the present time so that he might be both just and justifier. At the death of Jesus, God is just and justifier. So we need to see the mechanics of justification. We need to take it apart like we need a machine and see how it works. The best way to do this is look at the two really crucial words that Paul uses in these verses to help us understand justification. To understand what happened at the cross so that God can maintain his integrity and ungodly people can be pardoned. Jesus is our redemption, Paul says. Now this is a commercial term borrowed from the marketplace, just like justification is a legal term borrowed from the courtroom, what the word means is to buy back or to set free. The idea is that Jesus, in his death, buys us out of bondage and slavery to sin. Now, you might have heard this a trillion times before. You have been redeemed bought back as a slave to sin and death. Your life has been marked for a time to to sin and death. And God buys you back like a slave. And he does so at the cost of his life. You see, the human predicament is so dire that it cannot be remedied in any ordinary way. Dealing with sin required the redemption price of Jesus' blood. The cost is the life of God himself. And in the death of Jesus, we see suffering, the con- God suffering the consequences of sin. And this makes sense to us because the longing of, for some sort of payment when there has been a crime, is universal. That longing for vindication. When someone does us wrong, we want them to pay. We want blood, we say. And redemption means God has offered himself as payment. And the life of Jesus is the only life worth enough to pay our debt that Paul has unpacked for two and a half chapters to sin and to liberate us from sin's bondage. Second word is propitiation. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That word is regularly used to translate mercy seat, which refers to the golden lid on the Ark of the Covenant where sacrificial blood was sprinkled on the Day of Atonement once per year. That would happen to satisfy the wrath of God for sin. So 325 means that God offered Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement, a once-for-all offering to satisfy his own wrath and anger against sin. Now remember, when we mention God's wrath and anger towards sin, it is not like our anger and wrath. It is not out of control. It is always justified. And if God does not bring justice, then every death and every suffering is meaningless. But because of God's perfect justice, sin will be punished. And it will be punished in one of two places, in hell or at the cross. And the death of Jesus 
means that God punishes our sin in Jesus' body on the tree instead of in our eternal death. Jesus had no guilt or sin, but he bore the penalty of our guilt and sin. This is why John called Jesus the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. The cross is not about the physical agony he endured, but about the spiritual hell Jesus endured. God loved the objects of wrath so much that he gave his own son by his blood to make provision for removal of his wrath. This is how, Paul says, the cross shows God to be both just and justifier. The cross is the great demonstration of God's perfect justice in that he deals with sin once and for all. Now, the cross is the great demonstration of God's forgiving love in that he pardons sinners there once for all. And both happen through Jesus' redeeming and propitiating death. So this morning... God has done all that is necessary for your salvation. The cross is enough. It is enough to change your standing before God. It is enough to end sin's dominion in your life. It is enough to alter your eternal destiny. It is enough to banish the power and influence of the evil one. It is enough to bring you into a new family with a new identity. The cross is enough. Jesus paid it all. There's nothing left to be done. The verdict is in. Christ is in the dock, and he's paid for your sin, bought you back, gave you to God in the face of all those accusations, both the ones that come from the outside and those that come from the inside. He's put his hand over your mouth, pointed to Jesus, let him sit in your place, and declared, it is finished because I have finished it. And this decree is both now and not yet. Sometimes the Bible says judgment has not yet occurred, and other times it says it's our present possession. Sometimes it combines both. Certainly, about the future verdict, there means that we can be confident in the present. It's objective, declaration, it's constitutive. It brings about a state of affairs in its very declaration. It's a speech act. The judge has voiced his decree over you, and you now stand in a new relation to the law, to the court, and most importantly, to the judge. It's an adoption court, by the way. You stand in relationship to God as son and daughter of God adopted into his family, and it's been decreed. And receiving this, Paul says, is a matter of faith. That's the last point. How do we receive this verdict of justification? God has initiated justification by his grace. Christ has accomplished justification by his redeeming and substitutionary death. God has declared a verdict. You are righteous. So how does God, through Christ and what he did at the cross, get into our lives now? How can we receive the benefits of the death of Jesus? The verse makes it very clear. By faith alone. The one who has faith in Jesus. Faith is the means by which we receive the grace of God given to us in the cross of Jesus. So what does it mean for you to have faith? A few thoughts here. Faith, not moral effort or works of the law. Faith is not your moral effort or work. It is a gift given to you by God. Faith in Christ alone 
specifically, not a general faith in God. We are called to have faith in Jesus, in his death and his resurrection. Faith as a receptor, not as some moral attainment. It means that you've transferred your trust, your reliance for salvation and life and a right standing with God from yourself to God. And you sit into that. You fall into that. Like Nesty plunging in a pool or laying back into your bed, you fall into what you could not do and only Christ has done. By faith, you've been made righteous. Now, you envisioned your worst moments of this last week when you sank deeply into your sin. You are righteous, God says, when you live out of every other identity. You are righteous when you try to find satisfaction in all the wrong places and can't find it, and yet go back to that dry well again and again. You are righteous when you can't stop stealing your your siblings' chicken nuggets. You are righteous, and not in a subjective sense of how we feel necessarily, but in an objective one, it's the verdict of the court. Martin Luther would say, when the devil condemns you for your sin, tell him to go to hell. You've been made righteous. And Martin Lord Jones says, the man who has faith is the man who is no longer looking at himself and no longer looking to himself. He no longer looks at anything he once was. He does not look at what he is now. He does not even look at what he hopes to be as the result of his own efforts. He looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work, and he rests on that alone. He has ceased to say, ah, yes, I've committed terrible sins, but I have done this and that. I'm I'm doing so much better now. He stops saying that. If he goes on saying that, he has not got faith. Faith speaks in an entirely different manner and makes a man say, yes, I've sinned grievously. I have lived a life of sin, yet I know that I am a child of God because I am not resting on any righteousness of my own. My righteousness comes from Jesus. And God has put his account into my own. When you stand before God, Will that be your response? This is why Paul says, what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded by the law of faith. We are justified by faith apart from the works of the law, both Jew and Gentile, circumcised and uncircumcised. When the accusations come, Jesus is our only boast. When the praise and adorations come, Jesus is our only boast. When the good times come, Jesus is our only boast. When the bad times come, I woke up this week longing for holiness. I texted my buddy. I said, I wish I was more holy, less subject to the whims of my emotion. It's been a stressful week, and all week was just a lot of waiting around. I was bored, and when I'm bored, I waste time and feel at the end of it very spent and sad and anxious for my daughter and me and my wife and the rest of my kids. I wrote him, and this is what his response was. 
man, you did have an intense week. I would expect you to have a million emotions. No one would blame you. Dropping Blakely off, a denomination you pour yourself into, struggling, it's a lot. And he says this, you are holy, Justin. It's not a holiness you possess, but a holiness that Jesus gives. I think in these pains, places of pain and weakness, the law wants to take over and pummel us. The law is that you will f- only find Jesus at the end of your best. And the gospel is you will only really find Jesus at the end of your worst. My friends, you are loved today where you are, and the place to find Jesus today as at the end of your worst. This verdict pronounced over you this morning is you are righteous. Receive it with faith. Make it your only boast and fall into it. When you, tell your, when you, when you yell at your child, when you fail at the project of work, when you spend too much money, when you spill another drink at the table, when you can't ever finish your kitchen, when you get overwhelmed, when you're anxious and up in the middle of the night again and you take another drink and you make another click and you have another angry outburst, the gospel finds you there and declares to you, you are Loved and made righteous in Christ. Fall into that. God, help us this morning. All the, all the accusations come. And all our imaginations stir up our own defense. Let Christ be our only plea this morning. And let us come running to your table to receive your mercy and your kindness and your help in our time of need. Amen.